Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, we remain in our quarantine bunkers. There remain no more movies in theaters, but we have a really good show. We are kicking off our Little Gold Men Essentials series with Sunset Boulevard as per overwhelming vote from our Twitter followers. Uh, and that includes a special interview with Wayne Lawson, who uh, Mike refers to as his mentor. He was a longtime editor at Vanity Fair and worked very closely with Gloria Swanson and has some pretty incredible old Hollywood stories to share. But first, we want to catch up a little bit on the news that's going on in the world. Uh, everything in Hollywood is pretty much shut down, but there have been some expected delays on some upcoming award seasons. I think the most noteworthy is that the Tonys have been postponed indefinitely, given that Broadway is still shut down and is really unclear when it can reopen. That was kind of the only decision they could have made. Um, but Richard, as someone who sees a lot of theater, I imagine you're as bummed out about this as I am. Well, yeah, because you had kind of dispatched me to see a lot of the big spring stuff. So I had gone and gotten all my press tickets. I was going to see about three shows a week uh, for about a month, uh, which was really exciting wow. and company and how I learned to drive and all this stuff. And now it's all we were going to do a Tony's episode on the podcast again. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, a minor, minor loss in the grand scheme of things. But um yeah, it's just, it's scary. And, you know, I have friends who work in, in the theater world, and I kind of naively didn't realize, you know, because they, they work, you know, sort of more in like, uh, one in particular kind of more corporate um, side of things, not like not a, you know, um, performer or anything. But, and it's like, oh, they could all, I mean, that industry could just completely collapse in you know a month like it, it's really it's it's very tenuous in, in a way that like you forget how small the margins are on these things and uh yeah so that's a pretty pretty distressing um i think that the the kind of grim thing will be you know a couple shows like um caroline or change the revival at the roundabout um are going to come back in the in the fall um are going to actually open in the fall because they you know they're at these subscription houses that have a built-in ticket buying you know audience um but I think a lot of the sort of more regularly produced commercial things, I think they're just not going to happen. And I think so I think, you know, we're just getting all this kind of stuff wiped out, um, which is going to be a pretty weird blank spot on the sort of timeline of, of Broadway theater. Yeah, there's already been um, the Martin McDonough play Hangman is not going to open at all. I think there's been a couple of other shows to just announce that they're not coming back at all, which is really heartbreaking. But also you imagine like how in the world do you make up for this giant absence when, as you say, the, the margins on Broadway can be so small? Yeah, I don't know. We're never going to get to see Laurie Metcalf and Rupert Everett in uh, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That's another one that's not <sighs> going to happen now. Um, I doubt that the company that they got together, you know, they, they brought the British production over with Patti Lapone and um, had uh, Katrina Lank from Band's Visit was going to play Bobby, the lead. I My hunch is that's not going to happen. I bet the Mary Louise Parker revival of How I Learned to Drive it's not going to happen, you know. So it's a, it's a weird thing to think about. Um, and I think it's also... Um, shifting into like movies and TV, the, the theater stuff is an interesting uh, kind of prophecy of what what that's going to look like is that we're just going to run out of things. You know, movies are moving. Ghostbusters moved to next year. Morbius, the Jared Leto movie, moved to next year. TV production has stopped. We still have plenty of TV kind of in the can, but that's going to run out. So I don't know. I think, you know, I think the, 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 the tale of this is going to be long in a lot of ways. And, and, and this entertainment world is going to be one of them. Yeah, we can talk about the Emmys as being the other thing that shifted, although a lot less dramatically. They are basically pushing the entire timeline by about two weeks, which feels necessary. Like, you know, the Emmys uh, voting deadline was June 1st. So they kind of are changing that. They're changing the process through which you, you know, campaign for people. Um, the Golden Globes have uh, canceled some of their required schmoozing, which is tragic to realize because that's like the, the true heart of the Golden Globes. But honestly, when you, you, know, you think about Emmy voting beginning on July 2nd, like, will things be back to normal enough for that to even happen as normal. Well, the the Golden Globes thing that interests me is the eligibility change that they've made, right? Where they're saying that 
you know, a film can premiere on streaming and be eligible for the Golden Globes if you can show, you know, a reasonable intention that you plan to put it in the theater, right? But it's still a breaking down of a door that, uh, you know, the various awards bodies had been holding firmly shut um, in terms of, you know, like the whole Netflix question of like, does a Netflix film have to premiere in a theater? So that's just, you know, that there might be a one-off for this year, but it's an interesting erosion of something that we've been, been talking about for years on this podcast. Yeah. You imagine the Oscars doing everything possible to avoid having to do that. And a lot of maybe like qualifying runs happening in November to run for two weeks, just to say that you had a theatrical release. Although, I mean, it's just, it's hard to figure out with the, the prestige and all of the stuff, all of the, the, adjusting that goes into having an Oscar campaign, how not having a theatrical release is going to affect all of that. Yeah. I'm curious about, I'm, I'm curious about what, you know, let's just say, you know, this is under control by, you know, midsummer. And, you know, of course there's the fear of a resurgence in the fall. So it's hard to plan for the future, but let's just say like things start to kind of resume like normal. Um, in a couple months and then you so you have you know big planned film festivals in the in the early you know late summer uh toronto and telluride and venice and all that and then you have all these movies that didn't go to can i'm just curious like what that pile up will look like like if people will just kind of get out of the way figure 2020 a wash or if there will be sort of an almost opportunist kind of seizing on that the momentum of people wanting to get back to theaters, seeing movies, excited about you know business as usual. So I think it could be kind of an interesting pile up there in August and September, uh, or it could just be very quiet while people just consider this whole year a wash. Oh, it's gonna. It's so depressing to think about the Oscars just being like this blank space where there's just like not enough movies that came out or not enough movies that were able to get enough audience. It's gonna or, be yeah. Or conversely, you know, it could be just a real time of rallying, you know, of like really wanting to celebrate what we do have, what we have had, what, you know, people trying to feel like we're back to normal in some way. Um, So I could see it as a real opportunity for that. I I would love to see some creativity. I imagine there's a lot of creativity happening in terms of how do you make a movie if you can't, you know, go anywhere. And then, and then some creativity in terms of the distribution, which we're obviously seeing now already. People just saying, "All right, we can't release this in a theater. Like, sorry, we don't want to undercut our theatrical friends." But this, and, and it would be nice if the Academy would sort of acknowledge that, and if nothing else, take a year off from some of the more extreme restrictions on that. But yeah, it also feels like a, a year where there may be an opportunity for something interesting to get rewarded because there won't be as much of the usual um, the usual fare. Edgar Wright um, just tweeted something interesting, I think, this morning where he was saying, um, I wonder how many filmmakers are going to take advantage or have already taken advantage of the quasi-deserted cities around you know you think about how many mm. films uh were shot in detroit over the last few years to sh- like a bunch of horror movies were shot in detroit just to show like just Empty detroit streets. yeah and so like you know all these other cities are emptied out i mean like i've been seeing some footage that people are taking of san francisco there was there's this one viral video of san francisco in, in lockdown of just two uh like mounted um on horseback policemen riding through the empty streets of san francisco that uh that someone put the westworld theme song over but like it was just like it's, it's <laughs> but, but it's like it, you know I, I you know Edgar Wright was like I wonder how many filmmakers are taking advantage of that he's like I bet a bunch but also uh, they're gonna get you know shamed for doing it uh, at the same time so I don't know be interesting to see this year I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. 
ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So for the first week of our Little Gold Men Essentials series, we put up a poll to our Twitter followers and the overwhelming winner, like by this crazy margin that I definitely didn't expect, was Sunset Boulevard. I mean, maybe we should have expected it because it is one of those like stone cold Hollywood classics that when you think like movies about Hollywood, it's going to be in the top three. Um, But everyone was really excited for us to watch it. I had seen it before. But watching it again, I was like, I didn't, I definitely didn't know who Buster Keaton was when I first saw this so that I wouldn't have known his cameo in that bridge scene. Um, So it was basically as if I was seeing it for the first time. And um, guys, it's a really good movie. Did you know that? I just learned it (laughs) myself. No. (laughs) Was anyone else like watching it essentially for the first time? Um, I was watching the movie for the first time. I'd seen the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical with Glenn Close uh, when she brought that back a couple years ago to New York. Um... Uh, so live theater used to be a thing. You'd go go to a big room with a bunch of other people. And, um, but yeah, so the, I was new to the movie and it's just amazing watching it. And I think, Mike, you had said something like we wouldn't have, uh, you know, Catherine O'Hara's character, uh, Moira Rose on Schitt's Creek without this. You wouldn't have so many like big kind of like actress roles with without this kind of you know Gloria Swanson turn as Norma Desmond it's just so iconic and seeing the kind of birth of that iconography is really fascinating yeah you think yeah. about how it comes well before whatever happened to baby Jane or um oh god what's no wire hangers what's that movie called mommy dearest, mommy dearest. Um, like all of those like kind of camp classic performances or even like Cher's entire career like you think about this being 1950 and about how the <laughs> template for like or, like you know drag queens like so many things based on this it was so early it's such a huge touchstone for everything that came after it's funny. After we watched it, I um I then watched uh, tried to watch Some Like It Hot, which is Billy Wilder, I think nineteen fifty nine yeah. with with Marilyn Monroe and uh, Tony Curtis and um, Jack Lemmon, and somehow Some Like It Hot has not aged as well. I feel like as this, like, and partly because it's a comedy and everyone's sort of shouting and trying to be funny. And also, the late fifties were not nearly as cool as I think the early fifties. It's such an interesting <laughs> film because it's a. It's at that fulcrum. It really feels like the end of the 40s, the beginning of the 50s. Um, You can sort of, watching it, you can actually see why the 50s seemed like they would be a good idea at the beginning of the 50s. Like when when Bill Holden escapes to that um, party of young people, you're like, oh, these people are kind of cool. They're having a good time, you know, (laughs) huddled around the punch bowl in cardigans or whatever. So it's, I think it's late noir, right? I mean, the the 40s were kind of a noir time. But it just is so beautifully, perfectly done. The writing of it is is incredible. And then, obviously, Gloria Swanson just, you know, embodying, I think, on and off camera, uh, everything that was both amazing and probably needed to go away about the silent era that she that she represents. Yeah, it's interesting. I I first watched this film uh, in school, like as part of like a long film studies course. And we had already studied like Eric von Stroheim and we had studied Buster Keaton. We had studied like all the things and Gloria Swanson and all the things that came before it. So I have never watched this without like sort of an academic eye on it. And I'm so curious to know what the experience is like for people, because I know a lot of our listeners like just love this movie because it's a great movie. It's so fun. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's I think the thing that I had forgotten about it is how funny it is occasionally it's like you know that billy wilder wit uh is there in a lot of bill holden's lines but um as a relic or or as a document of of hollywood and hollywood first like is this the first instance of hollywood really turning its knives on itself uh in such a meaningful way um it, probably not but like you know the, the idea that like 
Hollywood is still so young when this movie is made that the idea of fading stardom is still like such a new, a newish concept, I think, uh, or maybe that's naive. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's an interesting look at, you know, that, it, that the industry was just old enough to have relics. You right, know, exactly. and I, I love that line toward the beginning where uh, Holden is like um, talking about the mansion that she lives in. And he says, the, it's the kind that crazy movie people built in the crazy 20s. And so to think that like, you know, Hollywood at that point had a 25 year or, you know, 20 year removed from that. And 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 so had this kind of perspective on the industry that had been already. It's just like it's just really interesting watching that sort of kind of almost like myth making start to happen uh, around Hollywood and stardom and all that stuff. Um, but I, so I think you're right, Joanna, that like this is one of the early or certainly one of the biggest early ones um, to to be sort of meta and self-critical. Yeah, you think about the fact that it came out two years before Singing in the Rain, which is not nearly so uh, cynical about the whole thing. Or I think four years before A Star is Born, uh, the Judy Garland version, although, of course, there had been a 1930s version, which I think is a little bit cynical about the industry. But I think Billy Wilder was maybe in a position where he was like in the club enough that he could kind of um, poke his way into it. You know, he'd made Double Indemnity, I think, six years earlier, which is kind of one of the most like classic noirs that exist um and it's you know it's there's affection in it too like i think when you get the cecil b DeMille scenes and he is just he's kind of this like warm paternal figure and you see him just trying to be so kind to norma desmond <laughs> even though she's just impossible to deal with um but it's 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 so unsparing at the same time and the tone of it in the end is so grim for the you know the status of all of these living legends who the industry had completely moved on from and we don't have there's no really really modern cognate like silent stars being completely undone by the change of technology you know there's there's ways that stars can and can't adapt now but that was such a monumental shift that ended so many careers I love when she just says we didn't need words we had faces <laughs> and and almost Half the time, at least, you know, she is doing that face like, you know, neck arched back um, eyes. I mean, her eyes are just absolutely incredible. But I, I love that scene where she goes to see Cecil B. DeMille and he is trying to be kind. And all of the it's the crew, you know, it starts mm-hmm. with Hawkeye up in the rafters uh, turning a light. Let's a, let's get a look at you. Uh, and then they all come around. I mean, it, it's incredibly moving. And the film, I feel like it, it, it is that classic sort of the knives are out, but so is the heavy duty myth making machinery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, and it really sort of it, it's constantly you're going back and forth between cynicism and and really like, um, I don't know, a gooey center em- about what uh, this sympathy. Means. Yeah. Yes. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, I think that's it. That is kind of one of the ways that it has a sort of queer sensibility, which is like, you know, it that campy thing is the making fun, but also the adoration at, at the same time, you know, um, and and just to think about how many how much that's been aped since. I mean, the, the, the two things I kept thinking about watching specifically Swanson in, in the role was um, you would never have had Madeline Kahn's Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, um, like that's such a thing but also you wouldn't have had uh, Eddie Redmayne in the Danish girl I don't think (laughs) or or Jupiter ascending yeah yeah, you know like it just it's such like a um a, a, almost like starter kit of a certain kind of film performance that has continued for 70 years since it's really um it's really remarkable the thing that I find fascinating looking back at its Oscar trajectory, you know, you watch it, you're like, wow, it only won three Oscars. Like, what the hell happened? It's because it came out the same year as All About Eve, which is yes. crazy. Yeah. The fact that you've got this performance from Gloria Swanson going up against Betty Davis and Ann Baxter in All About Eve, and they both lost to Judy Holiday and Born Yesterday, a movie I've never seen. Um, but it is this, like, fascinating year of uh, dueling movies about show business and also tells you why partly I'm fascinated by Oscar history is that, you know, a movie can be unjustly snubbed by the Academy quote unquote, but it's all about the context of what it was up against. And that year it was up against another slam dunk masterpiece. Yeah, it's tough. And like, it's, it's interesting to me, you talk about that sympathy. What I really like is, or, or even Mike saying like this ages pretty well, like I was watching it sort of 
sort of wincing the whole time at like how mean is this movie going to be to this woman and like I really like the line at the end where where Bill Holden's like there's nothing wrong with being 50 as long as you don't act like you're 25 and I'm like okay the crime <laughs> isn't aging it's like all the other stuff that she's doing with it okay that's alright then I'm on board yeah. with this so. well we have to talk about the ages too because first of all they're treating her like she's 175 years old <laughs> right and she's like f- five years older than me you know which Personally, I'm just like, man, okay. Where's um, your mansion, Mike? You got to work yeah, on this. Exactly. And then Bill Holden's uh, uh, 21, uh, 31, and then um, Nancy Olsen was 22, and they're all sort of playing their actual ages. Like, it's sort of, because it, of course I'm like IMDBing everybody going, all right, what is the age spread yeah. here? Um, yeah. And they they actually kind of cop to them all. It's not like they're not pretending she's 70, she's 50. Um, but she is a relic from another age. She was in her prime when she was in her 20s. And, but it is kind of it is sort of horrifying to think about how over the hill one could be considered at at age fifty, you know, sixty, uh, seventy years ago versus at least now there are there are examples of people, uh, you know, breaking that and not giving into it. She's the same age examples. as Jennifer Lopez is now. Yeah. Although Jennifer Lopez has had to, you know, she has worked harder than any human alive to age well, so maybe she's not she's not a model for me at least. I don't think I can accomplish it. But it is uh, it's sad how it's like it's just unthinkable for her to come back. Of course, the real Gloria Swanson does come back in the film, um, but it's like it's everyone's just kind of like, oh, this sad delusional dream that yeah. will never happen. Um, and clearly, partly because she had turned into a huge diva and was a pain in, in the ass, but partly because it was just like, it's it's done. The book is closed. Yeah. And I think some of the extremity of that, I mean, the way that this is almost like a Dracula movie, like, like you know, that, that I think that the, the film is wryly aware of that. It knows, obviously, that like... It's insane that a woman of fifty years old should be like kept up in a in a dark mansion and shunned by the world. You know, like (laughs) the the movie certainly knows that's ridiculous, while also acknowledging that at the time and for many years after was the reality as well. Um, So I I like that kind of you know self aware kind of thing because otherwise it would be I think a weird you know artifact of a of a of a different era. But it just feels so onto its own kind of wavelength that that uh it, it it feels sort of timeless because it's just it, it's so aware of 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 what it is and when it is well and it has to do with like I'll, there's lots of other people who worked with her who are still working that's why the scene works when she goes to cecil b demille's set starting right. with cecil b demille right. but it, so it is really specifically about stardom and the brutality of fame right like the it giveth and taketh away that's that's clearly like part of what this is all about the 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 fashion you know the viciousness of fashions coming and going and then mix it with the technological change which I feel like we can relate to the, the technological change side of it even though that particular one is is not relevant. What a what a good shelter in place movie this is. <laughs> yes, be like Nora Desmond. <laughs> Dance on your floor that, you know, Tyra oh, Power or whoever yeah, used to dance on. Yeah, you can't hire on. that band, though. <laughs> the musicians must not know what's happening. <laughs> Eric von is so good in this movie. Oh, he's um, so and it's, good. And it's such an interesting... Um, I For this uh, project, I dug out my old film history textbook, um, and I was reading up on Eric von Stroheim, and like the last big movie he did as a director was a Gloria Swanson movie, Queen Kelly. So, like, that's... Uh, you they they got her old director you know i mean i knew he was a director i just didn't know he was like glorious well, wanson's director you just know? To, to preview a little bit we're we're going to call wayne lawson my old boss at vanity fair who edited and heavily was involved in the writing of Gloria Swanson's um, autobiography, uh, Swanson on Swanson. And he has some good background on that relationship between Eric von Stroheim and uh, Gloria Swanson that includes Joe Kennedy, the father of JFK and RFK, who uh, had an affair with Gloria Swanson. But I will let, I'm just teasing it, but we will call Wayne. A political twist. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. Like the, the Hollywood cameos could be cringy and often are cringy but they're all perfect i think in this film like uh from cecil b demille to i mean von Storheim's not cameoing he's doing like a full role uh buster keaton etc had a hopper i mean like that had a hopper was willing to like play herself as 
a, a monstrous part of this film is in, incredible. I don't know. Honestly, I having seen um, was it Hitchcock where Helen Mirren plays Hedda Hopper? No, Trumbo. Um, I like didn't really know that much about what Hedda Hopper really talked like, or even like Tilda Swinton's role in Hail Caesar. I was like, oh wow, they were really nailing it. Like that is exactly yeah. what Hedda Hopper talked like. <laughs> I was watching a, a, something about the kind of evolution of, of American accents and about how this, th- that kind of mid-Atlantic quote-unquote thing was entirely made up by Hollywood. Like that no yeah. one in America spoke like that. And, you know, it's just so interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, realizing where all of these kind of tropes came from is uh, yet another reason to watch things, you know, made before 1975. <laughs> well, yeah, the Catherine Hepburn, like Bryn Mawr accent and then the, like the Cary Grant, like... I think was was born like lower class British and like comes over and does this whatever you know this thing that he does and then all of a sudden like people watching old movies are like oh we all used to talk this way and it's like no yeah just in Hollywood well like my, my husband who doesn't really watch a lot of old movies um, was kind of watching parts of this with me and you see the scenes where um, Gloria Swanson and William Holden are talking to each other and they're doing two completely different eras of stylized Hollywood talking and so that's where the movie really takes off for me is when they're for, they have their first conversation you're like they are talking from different planets like they are on totally different planes of existence and watching those two things exist in the same thing is completely thrilling and i think if you don't know a lot about old movies it's a really interesting place to start being like well here was one version of it that she started and then hollywood had evolved by then like the history before 1980 is pretty complicated it turns out i just love the um semi-hacky but really funny and great um narration that bill holden does from the dead and you know from the beginning, this is like a, a screen, like a semi-failed screenwriter's um, version of his own death narrative. I mean, it really is. It's it's very bold and and brilliant, and and it's just like I just found myself just like laughing through the whole thing, but not not with it, you know, just in yeah. kind of in awe, really, um, at so much of what they do, right down to the last scene of Gloria coming down that uh, uh, down that staircase of Norman Desmond coming down that staircase. You just think this is like it couldn't be better. It's pure. It's pure genius. That shot is this beautiful, weird, like almost theater art shot where the men are standing almost entirely still and she's walking down. It's really kind of presentational in a fascinating yeah, way. It's beautiful. I also think it's interesting the way that, you know, culture remembers things that it's not, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. It's Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up, you know? Uh, right. I just, and that's a small difference, but it's, it's like, like, play it again, just, Sam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the narration in um, Double Indemnity, uh, I imagine we've all seen it, but it's, it's similarly like gigantic um, and kind of funny, but then it totally sucks you in. And I think I've seen that the, the number one rule of screenwriting is never have a dead person be the narrator unless you're Sunset Boulevard. It's like the only time that, that <laughs> trope has ever worked. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's Raymond Chandler probably should have had royalties on all of it. I guess he he invented it. Right. But um, but it's just it's such a fun style. Like the, the, the young people in it represent that this kind of optimistic, chirpy um, uh, group of people who anyway would make the 50s for better or worse. Yeah, it's very post-war. I mean, you think about mm-hmm. how someone like Norma Desmond could have disappeared because for five years there everyone's head was turned in a completely different direction. And and then she just kind of rotted away in her mansion, you know. Um, and now everyone's kind of flooding back. The town is, you know, I mean, the town was operating throughout the war, obviously, too. But like, you know, it just it just has that feeling of newness, which nicely offsets, um, you know, her relative decrepitude. I just found myself sitting there wondering what direction Billy Wilder was giving, and maybe Wayne will have some insight into this, but was giving Gloria Swanson because she's like, you know, it's it's... It's an incredibly sympathetic role and performance, but also self-parody to a degree, you know, so that like that moment where she takes the, you know, whatever uh, beauty patches off her face, whatever they're doing, healing her wrinkles, I don't know. Um, and she gives herself that look in the mirror uh, right before she goes in to talk to him at the end. And I'm like, what did Billy Wilder say to her in terms of like what what looks to be pulling here? And um, I, you know, to be a fly on that wall would have been amazing. It feels like Gloria Swanson and Hedda Hopper were sort of in the same boat of being in on the joke enough to show up and do the movie, but also really invested in their image and confident that it's a great image and that people loved it. And that's why, you know, they had a special life. Right. I feel like right. there's people like that in Hollywood now. We, yes. we, we know those people. Yes, we do. 
All right, so we are thrilled to be joined right now on the telephone, on the landline, by Wayne Lawson, my former boss and mentor and friend, current friend, uh, the longtime executive literary editor of Vanity Fair, who knew Gloria Swanson very well. What would you say, Wayne, your contribution to her memoir, uh, Swanson on Swanson, was? You edited it? I virtually wrote the book. (laughs) Okay, good. I just (laughs) wanted you to say it. She was still married to her fifth husband, uh, William Dufty, but falling quickly out of love with him so that in the course of this producing this book, he lived at one end of their apartment. She lived at the other. There was a go-between who was uh, a young English producer for the BBC, and he had done a show of Swanson's sculpture in London, and she had fallen in love with him. She was 80. He was 40. And at that point, she had said, what next? And he said the memoirs. So he went out, sold a contract, got a contract from Random House without an agent, and they had a year to produce this book. She said to him originally, it won't work because Bill, Bill Dufty, and I have tried this before, and we just couldn't make it work. And he said, don't worry with me, you'll be able to. Well, after six months, they had 100 pages. And so Brian Degas, his name was, called me, and said, would you read this before we give it to Random House? And so I read it and said, you can't give this to Random House. Uh, You know, you can't start by saying I was born in 1899 under the sign of Aries. Uh, You know, it just sounds like an old lady's book. So he said, would you tell that to Gloria? So Gloria and I met. I said, look, I think this is the wrong way to go. I would do this as a flashback, you know, because I'm assuming that Sunset Boulevard is the greatest film you ever made. And, you know, you've got the greatest comeback story of all time, so I would do the whole book, start with Sunset Boulevard and do the whole book as a flashback. At which point she said, um, she said, that was not the greatest moment in my life. And I said, what was? And she said, I was the first star ever to produce star in my own film in Europe and marry a nobleman and come back with a, with a, with a noble title. And it was Madame Saint-Jean in 1926 or four, whatever it was, in, uh, in France. And that's when she married the Marquis de la Falaise and came back here. And she said they gave me a whole train ride uh, across the United States. When, I got, when we got to Hollywood uh, with Henri and I, everybody in Hollywood was at that station. Uh, and she said what nobody knew is that I'd had an abortion you know, in France, and that's why I was very ill and why everybody wanted to see me. So I said, well, I would start the book there and do it in two flashbacks, which, so is, were, what we, were, which is what we wound up doing. You were kind of in the position of Bill Holden with the giant manuscript of the bad Salome movie at the beginning there. It was. It had 100 pages. <laughs> it stunk. And it was obviously what they had also tried to do earlier. Uh, but once they had this flashback idea, it really worked. And um, so... What would happen is Brian would talk to Gloria about the next year. Then he would go and work with Bill Dufty. Then Bill Dufty would come up with a rough of a chapter. And that's what they had 100 pages when they showed it to me. Once it started over again, we had six months. And so that meant a chapter a week. So Brian would come down with me with this very rough chapter by Bill Dufty. And I would completely rewrite it, throw away like 80%, call and say, look, she had an archivist, so she had saved everything. I said, I need this and this and this and this and this. And then Brian would come back a week later. I would read it to him. He would say, that's a word she would never use. And I'd say, okay, let's change it. Anyway, so it went through the whole book until she kicked Bill Dufty out about two chapters before the book was finished. So the last couple of chapters are completely mine. Uh, okay. And Bill Dufty was out of the scene by then, and she was madly in love with with Brian, this much younger guy. So yes, in fact, it was throwing out entirely their thing and completely rewriting everything he gave us. So, so what were the uh, what were her top recollections of Sunset Boulevard? I mean, did, was it a good experience for her? Did, was she resentful of the fact that people thought it was her most important thing when actually it was this other thing in the twenties? No, she, she actually knew that this had been, you know, the coming back to life of Gloria Swanson. So 
uh, as she told it to me, she didn't talk about the people who had been, you know, that this had been offered to other people before Charles Brackett, the producer's office, started to call her in 1948. And so they had said, come out, we'd like you to do a screen test. And she was absolutely appalled. I mean, she said, me, a screen test. She'd been the biggest star in Hollywood, except for <laughs> Mary Pickford, for 20 years. And she, but she hadn't made a movie in 10. And it had been a big bomb called Father Takes a Wife. So she knew that there was something potential there. She called George Cukor to say, they want me to take a screen test, George. What do I do? And he said, take it. Uh, he said, these are the two most talented men and popular men in Hollywood, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. They had made Lost Weekend, Double Indemnity. I mean, they had just a string of hits. And so she took the screen test. And then comes the long story about the casting of this movie. She was told that she would be doing the screen test with a young actor named Montgomery Clift. And when she got there, they said, Mr. Clift uh, has another, uh, another commitment. In fact, his agent had said, this would be death for you to make a movie as a gigolo with an older woman. You know, <laughs> it's impossible. So what Gloria, you know, they said, but we've got another uh, young man, not as young, William Holden. Uh, and, she, and so they said, come in and let's do a second screen, t uh, a, a screen test with him and we'll make you look a little older. So they put a gray streak in her hair. He was, he was Holden was 31. She was 50. Yeah. Um, so she said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, you're not going to make me look 10 years older. Uh, she said, what, all the society women in New York, all the stars that I know, when they have affairs like this, I'm the right age, 50 not older. And she said, but I can tell you everything about makeup. We can make Mr. Holden look 10 years younger <laughs> or five years younger. And so they did. They cut his hair. They fixed his eyes. They did everything to make William Holden look younger. And they, they had nothing of a script at that point. They would, they would uh, uh, come up with, with new pages of dialogue every day that Glory would take. And what she had no idea was that before she had been offered this, they had first, you can imagine the kind of film that this would have been. Billy Wilder, they just had a rough idea of an old burlesque queen getting involved with a much younger man. And the, they originally offered this script to Mae West. Wow. Uh, wow. Who was not interested. They then went to Mary Pickford since she was married to a much younger man and had been the biggest star along with Gloria in the 1920s in Hollywood. And Pickford read it and said, it's just not right for me, but this would be perfect for either Gloria Swanson or Pola Negri, the other great silent vamp star. Um, so that's how Gloria got offered it. And between the time of Montgomery Clift and William Holden, she also did not know that Billy Wilder and Brack had it offered it first to Fred McMurray, then apparently uh, to, to Marlon Brando. This movie could have actually wound up with Marlon Brando and Mae West <laughs> as, a, as a hilarious comedy. They never saw it as a dark film noir. And they even offered it apparently to Gene Kelly. Everybody turned it down. They thought that Brando was not a big enough star. But really? they finally got William Holden, and he turned out to be the perfect Joe Gillis. Wow. And did you say, when we talked about this yesterday, that, that it was after um, Gloria Swanson came in that they built up her role? Because originally there was supposed to be a bigger part for the Nancy Olsen role? Oh, no, it was supposed to be a much bigger part for the, for the, um, the, the lead, the man. Oh, okay. Uh, Joe Gillis. And when this film opened... They had a long section of him dead in the swimming pool, his body fished out, taken to the morgue, his corpse talking, and screening audiences hated it. Oh. And that's when Billy Wilder said, I have to change this thing completely. He cut all of that out. They got people in for like another day of shooting to shorten that opening to what it now is. And that's when they finally had a huge hit. Wow. 
Well, let's talk about um, Eric von Stroheim, because you, you had some good background on that, didn't you? How did Gloria first get connected with Eric von Stroheim? Yeah, th- this, is, this is, Eric von Stroheim is the, is the other key, key figure in this film. In 1927, when she was the queen of Hollywood, that's when she met Joe Kennedy, this renegade producer. And he, he took to Gloria immediately and he said, look, this is insane. Why are you making so much money for, for Adolf Zucker and Cecil B. DeMille? You should, you know, let me take over your company and you will make a fortune. And she stupidly did that. And so Joe Kennedy took over her company. And although she kept thinking the chinchilla coats and the Rolls Royces and everything were coming from him, they were actually, he was taking everything out of her own budget. He almost made Gloria broke. But what he said was, we're going to stop making these cheap, trashy romance movies you make with DeMille. I'm going to get the classiest director from Europe here, who at that point was Eric von Stroheim, a great actor and director who made the most opulent films. You know, if somebody wanted to had, was said to be wearing a diamond necklace, he insisted it be diamonds. He was famous for this, for excess, luxury, uh, and these absolutely gorgeous films. And so they brought him to, uh, to America and they started filming. He started filming Gloria in this movie that was originally to be called The Swamp. She started out as a 16-year-old convent girl and winds up as a middle-aged woman running a string of whorehouses in Africa. And they shot for days on this thing, for weeks, and they finally had hours and hours of film, but they were nowhere near the end of it. And then, as I recall, the, the depression struck, but by then Gloria was just exasperated. So she wired Joe Kennedy to say, the director is insane. What do I do? <laughs> and Joe Kennedy said, we stop filming. Get rid of him. It's over. You know, And sound is coming in. We made the biggest mistake by making this a long, silent movie. So that was, so they parted very bitterly, Gloria and and von Stroheim. Then, now it's 30 years later, and she's in Hollywood making Sunset Boulevard, and Billy Wilder has the genius idea of bringing Eric von Stroheim in and casting him as one, her ex-husband, and two, now her butler. And when von Stroheim was offered this, he said, are you kidding? A butler role? Of course I'm not coming to Hollywood to do that. Then they told him it was Swanson. He came, was persuaded. And of course, he's brilliant in the film. Now, the, the great extension of that is that now, 30 years later, after Sunset Boulevard, von Stroheim, who, st- who still had all the cans of film from making The Swamp, contacted Gloria to say, Gloria, with your permission, this footage is magnificent. So he said, I would like to take the early years of this just and make a short film and call it Queen Kelly, just the period when you're the convent girl and meet the handsome prince. And can I do that? And she said, yes. And so he released that, I think, in 1957. I saw it in Europe as 1958 for the first time. And he released it as Queen Kelly, which has ever since been available. And if you have not seen this thing, it's amazing. Because as the 16-year-old convent girl, Gloria was 30. And she's just, (laughs) actors have raved about her in this for years. So that was the finale of all of this with Eric von Stroheim, was that he wound up actually producing part of the swamp, which they had fallen out over after they worked together in Sunset Boulevard. And And that footage shows up in Sunset Boulevard, doesn't it? Some of it? It does. Where she and Joe Gillis are sitting there, she, he said we'd watch a film every night, usually hers. Um, and they're sitting <laughs> and watching one of her old films. It's a fabulous face of her profile surrounded by candles. That is footage from Queen Kelly, Amazing. originally The Swamp. And that's when she stands up and says, there are no faces like that anymore. One hmm. maybe, Garbo. Um, All right, uh-huh. Do, now, do any of the other hosts here have any questions for Wayne while we have him? What's, is there a moment of Sunset Boulevard that strikes you as the most true to who Gloria actually was uh, in the film? 
Here we go. That's a, this is fascinating. One of the first things that Gloria would say to anybody she met was, and I hope you don't think I'm anything like that dreadful woman I play in Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. Because, of course, she became tagged. Everybody thought she was a 70-year-old crazy. Who knows? Um, and therefore, she would try to distance herself from that. She knew that the performance was great, but all the roles that she started to be offered for films were as old, eccentric, you know, outrageous uh, movie queens and things like that. And so she tried very much to distance herself. Oh, yeah, there are lots of things. You know, she Gloria was, was quite imperious. I mean, we wound up spending like a week together making all the revisions in the book that she wanted. And she'd cook dinner for us every night. Uh, yeah, the the best moments, the moments when she's most like are not those things like in the in the car where, you know, on the on her way to see DeMille or in the probably the, the, the stuff in the DeMille studio uh, when she gets, gets very sentimental and, and with with DeMille, who was in the movie again, who directed her in all of her great films and Billy Wilder arranged to have them go on the set of Samson and Delilah to have DeMille himself in person there with her. But I guess to answer the question, she herself loathed the idea of being identified in any way with Norma. Right. Um, that, that is the myth that, that she, all she was doing was playing herself. Uh, she was not. And the more eccentric they realized she could be and fabulous, the more Brackett and, and Billy Wilder would rewrite scenes for her. And she'd memorize them overnight and, and then do them fresh in the morning. Uh, on the set. I've been looking through um, pictures from her life after Sunset Boulevard, where she'd kind of made this incredible comeback. And there's pictures of her on Johnny Carson. There's pictures of her hanging out with Liza Minnelli and Andy Warhol. Uh, it sounds like once she had this big comeback, she was kind of a big fixture of uh, of New York society until, I mean, she died in her 90s. So she had a long life after this. Absolutely. She, see, she was 80 when we did the book. And what happened after Sunset Boulevard uh, Jose Ferrer was in New York on, on Broadway and filming Cyrano de Bergerac. And he called her to say, please do a play on Broadway with me and we'll take it on tour. And so he persuaded her to do 20th Century, that old uh, John Barrymore, Carol Landis um, film again. And they did it on stage and that restarted her career. And they were together the night of the Oscars when she didn't get it. And the great rival, Betty Davis, didn't get it. But she was with Jose Ferrer that night, and Jose Ferrer did get Best Actor for Cyrano. So, but that was the beginning. After that, she did several plays on Broadway, and she did do 20th Century with, with Jose Ferrer. And then, of course, she became the darling. Carol Burnett had her on the show. They, they sang together. They danced together. Um, and, and, of course, she was very much in demand. And one of Andy Warhol's favorite people at home and in, 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 in Studio 54 was Gloria, who was still with William Dufty. And so I have two pictures of them here, photographs, one of Andy's of them together. But the other, the other actress that he absolutely loved was Paulette Goddard. But you can imagine those are, those are the kinds of people that Andy was attracted to. But, <laughs> but she, she, yeah, she had a, she, she had a definite life, and uh, everybody was interested in her after Sunset Boulevard. They, they talked of making a, a musical of it, which, of course, later Andrew Lloyd Porter would make, but never with Gloria. Yeah, yeah she, she was much more popular. She was, what she was was very glamorous. She was this little petite lady. All the furniture in her apartment was slightly undersized. By the time I was there and spent time with her, she had kicked uh, William Dufty out, but she was always impeccably dressed. And the night that we finished the book, she said, make us a drink. She said, I'll, I'll even have one. I'll have that green <laughs> creme de menthe. And she said, would you like some ice cream? And I said, no, I'd rather have a drink. Uh, so she went and she was gone for like an hour. And I thought, oh my God, Gloria Swanson has died of a heart attack the night we finished <laughs> our book. She later came out, she had completely put on makeup, hair beautifully done. She had this marvelous, beautiful white blouse and black slacks. And she sat down and we had a drink. She said, there must be questions that you have, you know, after all this. Uh, 
anything you want to know about Hollywood. And the fascinating one that I remember from that night, as I said, because at that point, I thought the greatest genius out of Hollywood was Buster Keaton. And so I said, uh, well, Buster Keaton is in the movie and in the card game and so on. What was he like? And Gloria's response, snobbish response, just shattered me. She said, but we never knew him socially. Uh, you know, she said, and then she, the last line, assistant coach said, Chaplin was my clown. <laughs> wow. And I thought, Gloria, you just lost 100 points. But uh, <laughs> there we were. She later signed books for me. She came up to the publishing party and said, only you and I know who really wrote this book. And she said, and you are such a gentleman not to tell everybody. Breaking your silence on Little Go. Yeah, we really, we really got on though. Um, but she was not an easy lady, you know. She wanted, she wanted deference to be paid all the time. Uh, the one other interesting thing is, you know, in that card game where Buster Keaton is, the the other old man that looks like a little old Casper Milk Toast. Remember at the card parties, that's yeah. H. B. Warner. He and Gloria had made one of her hottest movies in the twenties called Zaza. And he was also played Christ in that huge extravaganza, silent extravaganza, King of Kings. Nobody realizes that, but H.B. Warner, every one of these people, every rock you pick up, there's you know, incredible life under it when you get to Sunset Boulevard. And mainly through the genius of Billy Wilder, who thought to bring live Cecil B. DeMille, Eric von Stroheim, and so on. I mean, it was just, once they got Gloria, they could make everything work. That's amazing. Well, thank you, Wayne. It's really a serious uh, privilege and pleasure uh, to have you on the show to talk about this. Um, nobody knows it better. So, so thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. My pleasure. Well, that does it for this week's show. Next week, we're going to be continuing our Little Gold Men Essential Series. And once again, we're going to be putting it up to a vote to you guys. It'll be on our Twitter feed, a poll. Uh, we're bringing back two contenders from last week, Gangs of New York, which was the runner-up to Sunset Boulevard, and Midnight Cowboy, which I think we were all maybe the most enthusiastic about checking out, although Sunset Boulevard obviously was a great choice. And then we're adding two more into the mix, Singing in the Rain, another classic behind-the-scenes of Hollywood movie from the 50s, and Chariots of Fire, a Best Picture winner from the 80s with a great story behind it and the kind of Oscar narratives that we get excited about. So uh, cast your votes on Twitter and we'll be back talking about one of those next week. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylas and Mike, I just wanted to say I'm so sorry to hear about your chimp. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> well, you brought the casket for the chimp funeral, right, Richard? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Joanna. Uh, Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description for Mike's early days working for Vanity Fair goes to Wayne Lawson. Well, we never knew him socially. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>